0: So here we are at the final installment of our credo, looking at the creed of the Catholic Church. I actually recorded this several months back, but was not completely happy with the way that came out. I think some of the points were a bit confusing, so I decided to sort of rewrite and re-record this episode on the tenet I believe in life everlasting, dealing with... What we as Catholics call the last things, death, judgment, purgatory, heaven, and hell. Uh, This is the the theme of eschatology. Uh, That's sort of the fancy theological word for it, from the Greek word eschaton, which means uh, the final event or the end of the world when Christ returns. Uh, A number of these topics, particularly purgatory and hell, or specifically the eternity of hell, can be a struggle for Christians and Catholics to, to really understand. So what I want to do today is try to offer a pretty thorough explanation, um, somewhat nuanced, and that's why I think I got into some confusion before. Um, to be able to explain it, I'm going to speak a fair amount in analogies using metaphors, and when we do that, we've got to remember what we call that major dissimilitude, that even though we're talking about this, there are a lot of similarities. There are always going to be a lot more differences. I try to use as precise language as possible um, so that what I have to say today about these topics uh, will be clear or as clear as possible. I first want to make this, this, this statement that uh, our understanding of eschatology, our understanding of the last things, particularly heaven and hell, is really going to depend on the type of view of God that you have. So a lot of the times if we see God primarily as that just judge, there's going to be a focus on hellfire and brimstone. I think for a period of the church, church's history, where this just judge idea was that God is sort of removed and there to judge us, all perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful, that We're going to focus on that, that terrible day when the Lord returns. Uh, you see this sort of emphasizing scripture, revelation, the, the seals, the bowls, the tortures, the punishment. It's the God of the Dies Irae, the day of wrath, that song or that chant that was sung for so long. I guess in a certain sense it's still sung uh, about warning us about the final judgment. And, of course, the fear of the Lord is good, that we need to worry about uh, our own salvation. We need to know and tremble in fear at His majesty. What's happened is is this healthy fear of the Lord is often tainted by what we call a Jansenistic worldview. Uh, Jansenism was a heresy that really sort of saw God as that just judge, very strict, very rigid, Um, not one who's necessarily very compassionate, merciful, and loving. I think you can go even further back, though, to the sort of uh, capricious God, uh, which is a God of nominalism and a God that rose out of certain philosophical strands, where we really don't know what God is going to do, um, that He is all-powerful, He has a will, and He can change and do whatever He wants. But the truth is, so, so we have a shift, though, beginning in the 19th century, or really coming to head in the 19th century with St. Therese of Lisieux uh, and that Carmelite tradition of really breaking away from this Jansenistic tradition, uh, but seeing God primarily as a merciful and loving Father. And this idea of mercy, of a loving God, which is always in present, um, really comes to the forefront. And so if you see God primarily as that loving and merciful father, although he's just and although he's fair, it's going to come from a different perspective, that God wants all of us, his children, to be saved. He's not looking to nitpick or to punish for every small little infraction, nor will he force us to accept his love. He's going to respect our freedom. However, through all this, he's not a pushover either. There are certain rules and regulations Uh, And he is willing to discipline his children. Today, though, I think that the church is going to approach heaven and hell and purgatory from that perspective of a loving and merciful God rather than that capricious (coughs) sort of God or that specifically just judge. Carl Ratzinger does mention this, (coughs) that shift in approach and how it impacts our eschatology. How to reckon this with some of the harsher scripture passages, that certainly is a struggle. Um, How to integrate all of this, but one that we unfortunately don't have a lot of time to do here. But we can begin our our excursus by looking into the the first element of this, which is death. And the reality of death, which is a, a fundamental human question, probably the most fundamental human question or it gives rise to a lot of the most fundamental questions. Why do we die? Um, what comes after death? You know, you think of it as humans for millennia, death really stared us in the faith. There's disease, there's war, famine, a high infant mortality rate. And from the Christian tradition, sort of connected to a lot of this, we having to face death on a daily basis, the idea of the memento mori, the Latin for to remember one's death, your own death, that one day you are going to die, you need to be ready. So you'd often see pictures of saints with skulls on their desks to remind them that one day that they will die. And this is important. We're not going to live forever. We need to be prepared for our death. But today, we we live longer. We've conquered a lot of the diseases. There's not as much war, uh, famine, plague um, as we had before. We live a much more peaceful existence. There's a longer life expectancy. And so we don't have to face death every day, at least as potentially other cultures and other people in the past had. And so not only are we able to avoid it, but we sort of hide it. We sanitize it. We, we push it away in hospitals, um, that we don't to see the rotting corpses and the death on a daily basis. Or on the other hand, we sort of desensitized it, TV and movies uh, and media. We see so much death and so much killing that it doesn't have that same impact. But yet the truth is, death still grips us, it still can be shocking especially when a loved one dies, particularly if it is a child or a spouse. And so this question still arises and can still cause a lot of consternation, a lot of struggle with the faith uh, and the lives of different individuals. So from the Catholic perspective, death is primarily a separation of the immortal soul, which we've discussed, from the body. Now, what exactly is the soul? We're gonna look at this more later, possibly um but it is that spiritual animating principle so sort of in latin is anima which means to animate um it is something which is immortal it doesn't die um and it it informs the body and when the body dies the soul which carries the intellect and the will um, and a lot of these different characteristics from the body goes on to be judged and so, we're going to see this in, in a bit. The body decomposes. We know that. It goes to the grave. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We still have a great reverence for the body in death. We believe in the necessity of burial. And even if you do cremation, which the church allows, you can't just scatter your ashes. That Even in death, the body is important. It is holy, and we have a reverence for it. Now, uh, just in looking at the the the... the reality of death as catholics we do not believe in reincarnation that after you die that your soul becomes reincarnated at some later time and some later being you have one shot at it uh, on this life and in this existence your soul will go to be judged later to be joined to the body but we'll talk about that later Uh, in the idea of the soul and talking about the soul uh, one of the questions that i get a lot is what about the existence of ghosts The church doesn't have any definitive position on this, but from my experience as a priest, I do believe in them. Them, You know, places that are haunted, um, ghosts that maybe reside in certain locations. Uh, I think even though that can be demonic presence, there's something out there where a person can die and somehow the soul remains on earth, maybe in a, a type of purification or purgatory. Um, And so the obligation that we would have is to pray for the repose of the soul of that individual and get into a lot of different stories of things that I've encountered in my time as a priest that certainly are preternatural experiences, or I believe to be, very difficult to be able to understand uh, where there's a place or locale that tends to be haunted, as they say. Uh, And then if you go and you say Masses and you pray, I believe the possibility of those souls going on. I don't know where they go. Do they go to purgatory? Is that their purgatory on earth? They go straight to heaven, but the place can uh, become a lot better. I remember a story I'll briefly tell of a person who came to me that said their house was haunted. Um, there was weird sort of ghostly activity going on there <clears throat> and I asked him, you know, did anyone die there? Was there a tragic death? Was there any kind of horrible event that took someone's life? And they said, no, the house is actually pretty new. So why don't you go talk to some of your neighbors to find out if they're experiencing the same thing. Well, come to find out many of them were in this neighborhood that was built in the 60s. I said, what you need to go do is find out exactly before this this settlement was built or this neighborhood was built, what exactly was there. And so they went and did some research and come to find out uh, that for a good period of time, that, that location where their suburb is was a slave cemetery. And so I really think that there is some connection to that. You know, I'd ask the, the pastor, the priest, to say some Masses there, hopefully to, to bring some relief to their souls. But anyhow, just giving you my own sort of approach or stories about that. I'm sure most priests have their stories of dealing with ghosts, uh, but it is something the church doesn't definitively talk about. Um, but <clears throat> when it comes to this death that happens, a body dies, What's the moment of death is? Again, we're going to leave that to somewhat to science to be able to figure out. Um, But the soul goes on to be judged. The catechism is clear in in paragraph 1021. Death puts an end to human life as the time open to either accepting or rejecting the divine grace manifested in Christ. So this goes back. We do not believe in reincarnation. What we did on earth, how we acted, what we believed matters. That we don't get a second chance and so the soul goes (coughs) to judgment and that's the next part after death uh, judgment as Catholics we believe that there's going to be a particular judgment (coughs) sorry y'all my um, my allergies are acting up Uh, there's going to be the particular judgment which is the soul is judged uh, after their death and then the final judgment when all of the world all of the souls are judged together so what is this particular judgment? So your soul goes, face Christ, who is the judge. And you are going to be sent to heaven, to purgatory, or to hell. That's where your son will go. Now, you're going to be judged, as we believe, according to your faith and works on earth. Uh, how you treated others, uh, what your belief system was, how well you loved, all of the different um, categories and laws and th- that Christ gives to us the teachings of the church, but in a real sense, as I think we're going to be able to see as we talk through this, Christ will judge each and every one of us. But He's really going to, in a certain sense, ratify the decision that we made with our life. It's by our free choices that we ultimately choose heaven or hell. Now, talking about God. Christ is a merciful judge, we have to believe, as I'll repeat in a little bit, that that Christ knows our hearts. So if there's a person there who has done something pretty terrible, um, but yet maybe was a victim of abuse as a child, um, had some mental incapacity, he's going to be able to understand those things and understand the heart. And so this is how we sort of address this issue of culpability for actions. Well, we can say that, hey, we committed this sin. True, we did, or this evil action, but how culpable is the individual for it? It's ultimately really going to be for Christ to decide. And so in moral theology, we talk about an action being malum, which is the Latin for evil, an action which is wrong in and of itself. You can think of murder, rape, um, stealing, whatever it is. But just because you commit that evil action doesn't mean that you are necessarily fully culpable for it. Let's say that you were forced into it. Let's say that you didn't have knowledge that it was evil, that you weren't uh, formed in that. Well, your culpability may not be as big. Therefore, leading to peccatum, it's quite possible that it may not technically be a sin, something you're culpable for, or at least not a grave sin, depending on the culpability. And so now we have a much better understanding of a lot of these extraneous circumstances, if you will, that go into the the judgment of the moral act, psychology, genetics, upbringing. Um, So does it mean that we're saying that no one is culpable for what they do and everyone gets to heaven? Not at all. These things possibly can reduce culpability. We as Catholics do not believe in determinism, that you're destined to act a certain way because of the way that you were born or because of certain genetic uh, or biological or physiological characteristics. Um, But these things can reduce our culpability, but it's really going to be for Christ, not us, to decide. And as that just judge, yes, but as one who is merciful and loving, really honestly believe he is going to take these things into consideration. And so you're going to have that, that particular judgment according to what you did, sent to heaven, hell, or to purgatory, which we're going to look at in a sense uh, and a little bit later. But then you say, well, Father, what about this final judgment? Why do we have to have a final judgment if we're already going to be judged? Well, let's get into this. So the final judgment, we believe, comes... After the resurrection of the dead, the end of time, which we're going to look at when Christ returns in the eschaton, uh, the resurrection of the dead uh, to glory or to damnation will happen. And so we are going to get our bodies back. Um, we're not just souls, we're that integral unity of body and soul. So the soul will be rejoined to the body. How that will be, what it will look like, not too sure exactly. But, uh, you know, we've seen so many pictures of this. We think of the Sistine Chapel, and the last judgment at the very bottom, you know, these, soul, these bodies coming out of the ground to be reconnected with their souls and either brought up to glory or brought down to damnation. Uh, but we do believe, indeed, that Christ is going to return, and this is going to happen when he does return in glory, to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Matthew chapter 25, to send us to heaven or hell, or to ratify the decisions that we've made by our choices. And so if this is going to be the case, why? Because it seems very, very redundant. As as Catholics, we believe that this judgment, the final judgment, is not going to be different than the one that comes to the particular judgment. It's not like, hey, you were judged to go to heaven, oh, the final judgment, we got it wrong, you're going to hell. No, it's going to be a ratification, if you will, or simply another statement on a very public level of the judgment that already happened. But why? Why is this necessary? and this is a great insight from Cardinal Ratzinger in his eschatology book, which I really highly suggest you read if you find the topic of eschatology to be interesting, is that what happens is after you die, you're judging your actions, but we have the rest of, of time to go on, the rest of history, thousands of years, millions of years, billions of years, we really don't know. And so your actions will be seen and judged in relation to, to their after-effects, to their consequences in the rest of history. so The Catechism, chapter 1039, says, In the presence of Christ, who is truth itself, the truth of each man's relationship with God will be laid bare. That's the judgment. But this last judgment will reveal, even to its fullest consequences, the good each person has done or failed to do in his earthly life. Let me give you an example. Uh, Think of St. Francis of Assisi who lived about 700 years ago, 600 years, 700, 800 years ago. So St. Francis, when he was died, judged to be worthy of heaven and brought to heaven. But the good actions that he committed, the love, the compassion he brought in the world, were like seeds that were planted that continue to bear fruit today. Every year, millions of people go on pilgrimage to Assisi. They have their little St. Francis bird baths in their yard. They have a devotion to St. Francis. And so his good actions continue to bear fruit and arguably still will. Something about uh, good actions and love and compassion, they grow exponentially in time. Well, let's think of an evil person um, from centuries past, maybe like Genghis Khan or some evil tyrant or dictator. When they died. Again, we don't know how they were judged, but still, during their life, they did evil actions. They hurt people. Um, And they're going to be the enduring effects of their actions in the world. But yet, this is the interesting thing. We don't really see a lot of evil people, their actions, continuing, at least obviously, to affect the world today. Um, Potentially, the evil of Genghis Khan or some other tyrant or barbarian or Hun in the past uh, Till of the Han um, continues to affect the world today, but the truth is, um, we, we don't believe that those evil actions continue to produce the same amount of fruit. Now, what happens though when the final judgment comes to the people who are still alive? Well, they're going to be judged also. Um, what the resurrection for them will look like, not exactly too sure, but We can read about it in the first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul talks about these bodies that will be taken up into the air and will be glorified and be judged along with everyone else. And it's quite possible some people will be so freaked out they'll end up having a heart attack and dying and then having to be judged. Uh, But that's not exactly what Scripture says will happen, uh, except that they will be judged also. And then Scripture also talks about this perfection of creation, that after the last judgment, a new heaven and a new earth, what exactly this will look like, will the whole universe be restored to perfection, Uh, don't fully understand what that would look like, but yet it truly is part of uh, teaching, Uh, the world, the universe is not going to be dispelled with and creation will be brought back to nothing, it's going to still exist. But it doesn't mean, uh, like the Mormons do, that you will become God of your own planet. Uh, We don't subscribe to that type of belief. Going back to what I said before is, you know, how the Lord judges us uh, according to our culpability. What about non-Christians or non-believers? How are they going to be judged? And as I said before, he is going to judge each person according to their heart um, and according to their conscience. You know everyone has this moral compass that helps us to decide what's right and wrong of course it's a judgment of our reason it has to be formed but there's a person imagine who's never been taught about god who's never been taught about christ we as catholics do not believe that they are predestined for hell what we believe is that when they die they will be judged according to their conscience and quite possibly the church teaches There are individuals out there who have what we call invincible ignorance. There's no way they were ever known, able to know the truth or to be convinced of it. And so the Lord is going to be very, very merciful. He wants these individuals to be with him uh, and is going to show mercy, uh, but still judge them according to their conscience and whatever factors uh, help render a decision on culpability. As again, I said, I have no idea. Catholics have no idea that when this will happen, Uh, Jesus says as much. It could be tomorrow. It could be a billion years from now. Imagine what the church would look like a billion years from now and how it would develop. It's quite possible. But regardless, we need to be ready. Jesus says this over and over again. Don't let that day catch you off guard. Uh, Always be ready, striving to live in the state of grace and and moral rectitude and the practice of the faith. So that's the judgment. We're going to get now to, I guess, the the deeper issues that tend to be much more of a challenge, particularly uh, teaching on purgatory. Particularly many of our Protestant brothers and sisters really struggle with this idea. So let's get a definition of what purgatory is from the Catechism, uh, chapters 1030 and 1031, or paragraphs 1030 and 1031. The Catechism states, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The Church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. And so uh, purgatory is not an antechamber of hell with tortures. I think a lot of the times uh, we can tend to believe that, that these souls are being tortured in this fire, or they're being uh, tormented for the things that they've done. Not at all. All we can say is that purgatory is a preparation, a purification for, he- for heaven. You're going to get to heaven, you know it, but there still needs to be some purification. Uh, You can't see God yet, but you know you're going to be able to. It's like the kid who knows that vacation is a week away. Summer vacation, you could see it, but it's not there yet. Uh, And so you yearn for it, and you desire to achieve it. The souls in purgatory are still in communion with the church on earth. We can pray for them, we have connections to them, our loved ones, and we can shorten their purification. We could talk about that a little bit later. Uh, The problem is that the Protestants struggle because there's no explicit reference to purgatory in Scripture. Now, of course, as Catholics, as we've seen, we do not believe anything needs to be explicitly contained in Scripture for us to believe it. But yet we believe that in Scripture we can see some references to the idea of purgatory or at least praying for the dead. Uh, and our ability to still have connection to the dead. Uh, in the Old Testament, look at this first, there's no explicit mention of purgatory. There is the idea of Sheol, uh, which is the realm of the dead in the Old Testament. There's hell, there's heaven, but heaven is closed off because of sin until the Messiah comes, and so there's this sort of pit the realm of the dead where souls the souls of the just go. But we really begin to see a deeper idea of this idea of purification of souls and the possibility of praying for the dead in the second book of Maccabees, chapter 12, verses 38 to 46, um, and, and dating to about the year 170 B.C. And so uh, the story is, is the Judas Maccabeus sees some of the Jewish soldiers who have died, but they're wearing these little pagan amulets, Um, these little pagan items, arguably to give them good luck or to uh, have recourse to the pagan gods. And so the scripture says that turning to supplication, they, Judas Maccabeus and the just Jews here, prayed that the sinful deed might be fully blotted out. The noble Judas warned the soldiers to keep themselves free from sin, for they had seen with their own eyes what had happened because of the sin of those who had fallen. He then took up a collection among all his soldiers, amounting to 2,000 silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide for an expiatory sacrifice. In doing so, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, inasmuch as much as he had the resurrection of the dead in view. Now, this passage does not explicitly refer to purgatory, but it establishes, very, very close to the time of Christ, the practice of prayer for the dead to Uh, remove them from sin, to have this expiatory sacrifice. And the truth is, prayer for the dead is common in all cultures. Uh, It's almost this human instinct, this desire to be connected with and to want to be with our loved ones. And so our Christian practice of praying for the dead grew from this normal human inclination, uh, but also from this Jewish practice Um, that is so close to the time of Christ. And so it's really praying to free from sin those who are not already in heaven. And so if you're being freed from sin, it sort of implies this idea of purification. What about the New Testament? Did you or do we see any explicit mention? No, we do not but we can see certain references that point to uh, a belief or a foundation of this need for purification. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 25 to 26, uh, the scripture says, make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, You will never get out of jail or get out until you have paid the last penny. And so this idea that, hey, um, you're not just locked in jail for good. It's not a life sentence. Once you pay the last penny, once you are purified, you can get into the kingdom of heaven. Also, we see a parable that deals with the wedding garment. You can't get in if your wedding garment is dirty, if you're not wearing the proper clothes. So this idea that purgatory could be a place where you wear, you get the proper clothes, your wedding garment is clean so that you can enter in. But for Cardinal Ratzinger, who, of course, became Pope Benedict, uh, even writing in his document, salvi talks about, well, this is his encyclical on hope, uh, the passage from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Uh, I'll read what it says. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which had any man is built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so I, this is really seeming to be something pointing to purgatory, that we're going to be judged on this final day for our work. If You did a great job and there's no, there's no need for purification. There are no imperfections. You get to go to heaven, but that fire is going to purify the imperfections, and you can still be saved. You're not being tossed into hell, but only through fire and purification, certainly seeming to be reference to some type of state of purification. But the early church, uh, building on the tradition of the apostles and scripture, had a belief in a state of purgatory. Uh, the African author Tertullian, writing in the year 211, says, We offer sacrifices for the dead on their birthday anniversaries. Uh, this is the date of death, their birth into eternal life. And so this is in 211, offering sacrifices, praying for the dead. And the most famous instance actually comes from St. Augustine in his book, uh, The Confessions, the ninth book of his Confessions, written around the year 398, um, where he Praise for his mother, Monica, and the repose of her soul. Another evidence, not clearly of purgatory, but at least of the necessity of prayer for the dead. We can also look at archaeological evidence, particularly in Rome. We know that in the catacombs where the early Christians were buried, they had mass in the catacombs, particularly on the anniversary of death. But you also can see uh, prayers on the tombs like in the Catacomb Catech- the, the of Priscilla, uh, on this one tomb, the tomb of a man named Agape. It is written, I beg you to pray when you come here and to entreat Father and Son in all your prayers. Do not fail to remember dear Agape, so that God Almighty may keep dear Agape safe forever. So praying for the dead. But for me, one of the, the potentially most interesting references to purgatory or purification is you'll often see uh, image, uh, not often, but sometimes see the image in the catacombs of the three young men in the fiery furnace from the book of Daniel, Adrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they were thrown in by King Nebuchadnezzar, but yet they were not consumed, but they were aglow, and there was the angel walking there with him. And so why would that be in the catacombs? Well, quite possibly because it becomes sort of a foreshadowing, an allegory for purgatory, to be thrown into the fire, not to be destroyed, but to be purified, to be later brought out to redemption. And so there is certainly evidence of praying for the dead and uh, the state of purification in the early church. How, though, do, do we understand purgatory? We can see sort of the tradition in the early church. How do we understand it today? Again, I could have given a lot more references to church teaching on purgatory. I don't want to sort of jump to today. We believe that purgatory is not so much a place, like in the center of the earth, as I think a lot of people once believed, or like you saw in pictures. It's not a locale, locale but it's more of a state, a state of being purified in Christ Jesus. And so Pope Benedict, in that encyclical I mentioned, Salvi*, the one on hope, says, at the moment of judgment, we experience and we observe the overwhelming power of his love over all the evil in the world and in ourselves. So you see here a reference to that God of love rather than his justice. The pain of love becomes our salvation and our joy. It is clear that we cannot calculate the duration of this transforming burning in terms of the chronological measurements of this world, the transforming, quote-unquote, moment of this encounter eludes earthly time reckoning. It is the heart's time. It is the time of, quote-unquote, passage to communion with God in the body of Christ. And so Benedict is stating here that we, we believe that purgatory is not so much a place, but a state of being purified in Christ. But what is the purification? What is the the, the impetus for it? It's love. Love is the purifier, experiencing Christ's love, also along with the pain of not being with God. And so our love needs to be perfected, and it is perfected by the very love of Jesus. And so if we can maybe escape from this idea that purgatory is a place of of torture, but a place of being purified in Christ. How long it lasts, uh, very, very difficult to say, Uh, But at least, you know, we could say it's it's like that moment of the time, the instance of encountering Christ and being uh, purified. We can also use some uh, analogies to help us better understand this idea of being purified. We've already seen the one from Corinthians, talking about sort of that dross, the imperfections being burnt off. One that I often like to use is this, that Let's say that you throw a rock and you break a window. Well, you may be forgiven of your sins because you did this, but the window still has to be fixed. There's still after effects of the sin there. And so while the Lord may have forgiven us of our sins, we've said we're sorry for what we did, and the Lord grants us that forgiveness, there still needs to be purification. There still needs to be reparation. That window still needs to be fixed, and that's what purgatory does for us. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, r- who was not a Catholic but still believed in the state of purification, uh, uses an analogy to explain it. He says, My favorite image on this matter comes from the dentist chair. I hope that when the tooth of life is drawn and I am coming around, a voice will say, Rinse your mouth out with this. This will be purgatory. The rinsing may take longer than I can now imagine. The taste of this may be more fiery and astringent. Than my present sensibility could endure, but it will not be disgusting and unhallowed. And so it's sort of like, you got that nasty old breath, you got to rinse it out. Uh, even though the tooth has been extracted um, and the, the, the problem is resolved, still need to rinse out the residue from the mouth. You know, and so we can't forget, particularly if this idea of love is there, and these souls are being purified in the love of Christ, that we're still connected to them, and we still care about them. We want to be with them. This is the communion of saints um, that we've discussed. Uh, The souls in purgatory are the church suffering, and we can pray for them, and we can love them. And we believe that once they leave purgatory and get to heaven, they will pray for us. So that's this idea, the tradition of praying the soul in, for purg- in purgatory who needs it the most, and so knowing that even if you don't know that purgatory soul, once that soul gets to heaven, they are going to be indebted to you. I really do like, though, the ideas of Cardinal Ratzinger, writing again in that eschatology book, as you can tell, a lot of, of my thought or what I'm teaching comes from Ratzinger's thought, Uh, where he talks about the idea of unresolved guilt. Uh, And so it's based on this idea that we are all one body in Christ, that we are interconnected through our humanity and through baptism. And that what happens is, is that when we sin, we hurt others, and there's this unresolved guilt. And so he describes it uh, in a very unique way by saying that, quote, purgatory means still unresolved guilt. Uh, suffering which continues to radiate because of our guilt. Purgatory means then suffering to the end that one is left behind on earth and their certainty of being definitively accepted, yet having to bear the infinite burden of the withdrawn presence of the beloved. So, so basically, that yeah, even though we've been forgiven, the people that we've still hurt on earth that are suffering because of us that needs to be resolved. Those bonds need to be connected. I think it's, we can understand it in another way. Imagine that you die and that you get to heaven or you would get to heaven. And while you're there, you see all these people who you didn't like on earth or who hurt you, or maybe whom you hurt, who normally you would want to avoid. Well, you can't avoid these people for all of eternity. Um, and so in order for us in heaven to all live in harmony, those resentments, those grudges, those things that bound you to those types of people while they are on earth or while you're on earth and they are in heaven need to be purified so that we can live in a deeper harmony. Uh, this is why Ratzinger ultimately says that Our Lady <coughs> was assumed into heaven is because there was no unresolved guilt, because there was sinlessness that never connected her to anyone who was on earth. But I know we've already uh, discussed that. Can we, though, sort of one final question in regards to this, can we escape purgatory? Uh, I think a lot of times people have this idea of, I'm just trying to make sure I get out of hell, and I'm going to turn the lights out in purgatory. You know, Jesus is going to throw the remote control to me and say, turn on the TV when you're done. Um, this, though, as funny as it can be, is not necessarily the best of attitudes. St. Therese of Lisieux really figured that she wasn't going to have to go because she was going to live at purgatory on earth. as uh, that Her love was going to be perfected. There wasn't going to be a lot of sin to connect her to others. She was going to make reparation for whatever sins that she did have and that she so desired to be with the Father and Jesus that they would welcome her. And So that should be our attitude, that we don't want to just say, I'm going to resolve myself to the minimum the fate of going to purgatory, to really strive for holiness, to strive for love, so that we can uh, make it to the kingdom of heaven and escape this state of purification. Now, uh, along with this, a couple of other topics uh, before we get to hell. What about the indulgences? What are indulgences? The Catechism states in in paragraphs 1471, uh, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority, the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints. It's a very sort of long way of describing is that even though we've been forgiven, the window still needs to be repaired. There's still this punishment that is due. You're still going to be grounded for a period of time. But because of the, the satisfactions that Christ has gained through his death and the works and the prayers of the saints, these merits, as it were, can be applied to us, either in a partial way or a plenary, a large way. And, and the church has been given us these different types of indulgences, the indulging of in certain actions or certain prayers. And if we do it, um, it can be applied to ourselves or to others, uh, other souls in purgatory. And so there's a lot of confusion. You know, it's a hundred years out of purgatory. no. It's equivalent to this partial indulgence to a 100 days of penance that you might have done or a 100 sort of prayers that you might have done. Most people know about indulgences through um, uh, Martin Luther and his rebellion against the church. One of the big issues was not indulgences, but was the selling of indulgences. There were certain priests and individuals who would say, you know, you give us $100 and we're going to give you a partial indulgence or a plenary indulgence. That is an abuse. This idea of selling indulgences rather than gaining them through prayer or uh, the beneficence of the church. I think the best way to understand this uh, is seeing the church as a mother. We've already talked about that, the feminine nature of the church. And so, you know, let's say you did something wrong, you broke that window, and you've been grounded for a week or two, um, but. Your mom is being so merciful and says, You know, if you go take out the trash, I'll take two days off of your punishment. So the mother indulges the child because she loves him or her. And so, in the same way, uh, our mother, the church, could give indulgences, indulges us uh, to help us. Reduce this need of purification or the amount of purification so we can be with the Lord in heaven sooner. Uh, The other question, tied or often comes up, is what is limbo? Limbo um, is this theological proposition the church has never officially taught, where basically unbaptized babies go. Imagine you're a baby, you die. You're not baptized, well, you're not going to get to heaven, they believed, but you're not going to go to hell, so you go to this place of limbo. But this is certainly not something Catholics believe in. About ten years ago, the Vatican put out a clarification on the nature of limbo and sort of a theological understanding of it. The idea of limbo comes from a very limited understanding of the power of baptism and God's power to save. Basically, that if you were not baptized and were an official member of the church, you were not saved. And so you risk going to hell. But hey, we didn't want to say little babies go to hell, so they came up with this idea of limbo. What happens to unbaptized babies? We have great hope for their salvation because we understand the mercy and the power of God. Now to sort of the big controversial topic that so many people struggle with, not just Protestants, but Catholics too, but hell. And I think the idea of hell is, is more difficult to Catholics uh, than to non-Catholics, it seems. You always hear that you know, fundamentalists and Baptists seem to have no problem with the idea of hell. I, I, I truthfully, though, don't believe necessarily that people have a problem with the idea of hell or its existence, <clears throat> but the eternity of it. Why does hell need to be eternal? How can a loving God send someone to hell for all of eternity? Well, we're going to do our best to to understand this or explain it, even though it is truly a mystery. So what is hell? The Catechism gives a brilliant, very succinct definition in paragraph 1033. It says, To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love, means remaining separated from Him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. Look at these two phrases. They're so important that we remain separated from God by our own free choice. Our freedom matters. We make the choice. And it is a state of definitive self-exclusion that we choose to exclude ourselves from heaven uh, and that it is a definitive choice that cannot be turned back. So let's try to look at this more in detail. What does this self-exclusion from heaven mean? Um, It's not so much that God sends us to hell, but that we exclude ourselves from heaven in a definitive manner. The burden falls on us. We make the choice. As I said early, earlier, God or Christ sort of ratifies our own decision to exclude ourselves. It's like the, the kid who doesn't want to come in for lunch. Well, fine, this is your choice. You can skip dinner or skip lunch. I'm going to ratify the decision. You don't come to this table. We can say that we are judged or deemed worthy of punishment and that God sends us to punishment. But I think, as I said, it's more of a ratification of a free choice we made. So, what is that choice? It's to refuse God's mercy and love, to not repent, especially at our death, to hold on to our sin, our own will. Um, so, you see the first part of that quoted paragraph uh, to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love, to refuse it. This is that unforgivable sin. That God is not going to force us to receive his love and mercy. He is a great respecter of our freedom and our ability to choose freely. And so we choose to isolate ourselves from God and his love, and he respects it. You know, it's the the younger son or even the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. The younger son leaves, and the Lord, and the father respects it. He doesn't force him to stay. He lets him go. And the younger son doesn't the older son doesn't want to come into the house. He's not going to force him either even though he's going to beg and plead. The Father does not force. This also helps us to understand that no one is predestined to go to hell. This is the choice that we make. and We don't see predestination so much anymore. Uh, It's complicated because the question of, you know, if God knows we're going to go to hell because he's all-knowing, then are we truly free? Somehow there's that mystery of human freedom and God's will, but that can be explored when uh, we look at moral theology. And the Catechism, is clear in paragraph 1037. God predestines no one to go to hell, for this, a willful willful turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary, and persistence in it to the very end. So I'm willfully choosing to turn away from God by sinning, and I'm going to persist to the very end. So so why is this, though, a definitive choice? Why can't we change our mind? Because if it's definitive, that means it lasts into eternity. And I really think the reason that it is definitive isn't so much that it is our definitive choice, even though it is, but because of the nature of heaven, that heaven is eternal. God's love is eternal. And The person who chooses to exclude themselves from God's love and refuse it is never going to want to change their mind. Their decision becomes definitive because God's love is never going to change. His mercy is never going to change. And so we refuse it. We say we don't want it because God is not going to stop being God. And therefore, if we don't like it now, we're never going to like it or we're never going to want it. Um, and so hell, though, this is an important distinction. Uh, we use the word eternal, not so much. Probably the better word uh, is never ending. It's like, oh my goodness, this class is so boring. It is never ending. It's torturous. Um, so, so hell has that, that that same sense of it's never going to end. It's horrible. Well, eternity has a sense of timelessness. Imagine You know, time flies by when you're having fun. You're not paying attention to it. So when we're immersed in joy and happiness, uh, we get that sense (coughs) of what eternity is like as opposed to never-ending. Why would anyone choose this? Why would anyone make this definitive choice? And the only way we can really understand it, I think, is from using certain analogies. Uh, One of the favorite analogies I like to use is the mall analogy. I can imagine that if I died... And I got to heaven, and, and, and St. Peter's there, and, and he says, it Before you, you see the face of God, let me let you look at what heaven is like. And we get there, and I realize heaven is a big shopping mall on Black Friday in the morning. I, I, that's hell to me. I mean, goodness gracious. Spending eternity in the mall, I would say, I don't know what hell is, but it's better than this, because heaven would be hell to me. And so, the person who's mired in sin and refuses God's love, even though understandably he is going to be able to read hearts and to understand that maybe quite possibly this person refuses love as a result of something that was happened to them and to overwhelm him with his mercy, um, this person, if you get to heaven, you see everyone's loving each other. And then uh, heaven is really one big mass, as it seems, it's one big liturgy from the book of Revelation person would say in the same way, I would rather isolate myself from all eternity, for all eternity rather than to be here. So we make our own hell. We isolate ourselves. The person wants to be miserable, just as they do on earth. You know, plenty of people who refuse to go into the party for whatever reason, um, because they choose to be miserable. This is the same sort of thing. Uh, it ties into the nature of God's love the community of saints, and the fact that we believe that it is eternal. So this is the decision that we make to go to hell. What exactly though is hell going to be like? Well many have images of places of fire, demon, torture. Jesus certainly refers to hell as, as the Gehenna uh, which is a place, the sort of trash dump outside of the city. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but this place of torture and demons is somewhat exaggerated, and I think often influenced by Dante's Divine Comedy, where the souls in the, the nine circles uh, are all tortured. Certainly we could say that hell was originally for the demons, the fallen angels. Uh, they were the ones who brought hell into existence. Um, but humans have the possibility to go there. But the church's teaching is sort of nuanced and, and uses very precise language. Notice, it says it's the state of self-exclusion, definitive self-exclusion. Like purgatory, maybe more of a state than a place. You can't dig in the world, the bottom, uh, or walk down some passage to be able to find hell. Uh, We can't deny it will have a placeness, because after the resurrection, bodies will go there. It's not just your soul. Your body, after the final judgment, will go to meet your soul either in heaven or in hell. Uh, So there will be sort of a placeness because bodies can be in there. Uh, But as I mentioned earlier, didn't Jesus talk about the fires of hell, the pit of fire? He talks about Gehenna. Well, it is. It was the big fire pit, the trash dump outside of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, So there was all this refuse. They didn't have recycling back then, so it was always on fire but it was outside of Jerusalem. And so it's not so much the fire, but being excluded from the city. You're not in the communion of saints. You're not where the presence of God is. Um, and so he used this to create this image of being excluded uh, of pain and of suffering. Now, possibly, you know, there's going to be hell, fire, and brimstone. You know, we, we really don't know. Uh, we just know what the Lord has said and what the church has taught. But the Catechism is pretty clear in paragraph 1035 in saying the chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. And so the chief punishment is not hot pokers or it's not, you know, demons gnawing off your skull. It is separation from God. You know, we're made for, to be with God. We're made for happiness. We're made for joy. And we are bringing about this self-inflicted wound where the angry child refuses to play with others, the angry child refuses to go inside. And so we are pulling ourselves away, excluding ourselves from God's love. And in a certain sense, potentially just isolating ourselves from others also. Um, where there's no love, there's no connection, um, and it's just that misery, that loneliness, that self-pity and that self-hatred. C.S. Lewis, in his Great Divorce, talks about heaven, hell, um, and he uses some wonderful sort of allegory to describe it. And he says that, uh, or you can see in The Great Divorce, hell is depicted as this endless great town with millions and millions of houses, where everybody is constantly moving farther and farther away from each other because they can't stand each other. They're nasty people. They don't like each other, and they're consumed with self. They, they, so, hey, we don't want to be near God, but we don't want to be near anyone else either. And so there's a self-exclusion. And yet, uh, when you sort of look in a greater sense, you'll see, uh, you widen the lens, um, that... Uh, That hell, this gray town, is just a crack in heaven's sidewalk. Um, It's so small that it doesn't amount to a crack in the sidewalk to all of heaven. Um, It's so tiny in relation to everything else, and so even though there may be souls in hell, they're so it's so small compared to the love of God. I think another sort of way of understanding hell is sort of uh, self-consumption, self-cannibalism. You cut yourself off from God, and you're constantly devouring yourself for all eternity, because you can go into eternity by dividing things in half. Uh, These are all, again, allegories and analogies for understanding hell, but just a a few last things about the reality of hell. Do we believe that God created hell? The truth is no. We believe that Hell is a state, uh, fallen angels, man created. In a certain sense, we create our own hell. God didn't, because God cannot create evil. Um, So hell is something that comes from the actions of creatures. But can we uh, hope that all men be saved? Well, the church does not teach universalism that everyone is definitively saved. Um, But on the other hand, we can't say definitively that any specific person is in hell. The church teaches that hell is not empty, but that we can't say that definitively Judas is there or Hitler is there. What if um, Hitler, the moment before he died, repented from sin? He he may be in purgatory for a very long time, uh, but it doesn't mean that they are definitely in hell. We believe that because God is a loving father, even Hitler, uh, even Judas, were loved by him. He does not want to see them lost. He wants them to come in. Uh, but it's going to be their choice or whoever's choice is to keep themselves out. And so his mercy is infinite on earth, even the smallest sign of repentance, and he would forgive. He's that father of mercy. Um But that decision, we believe, has to come while you are on earth. Um, But yet, believing that your soul in the next life is connected to the choices that you made. uh, It's not like all of a sudden you become a different being. A decision that you make, the, the decision that's made at the particular judgment where God ratifies your decision, where you are judged worthy of heaven or hell, is something that is certainly definitive. But enough about hell, let's sort of bring it to conclusion, which the most important topic here is heaven. We are all destined for as humans. We believe that through the Paschal Mystery, Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, he has brought salvation to the world. He's opened up the possibility to heaven. Catechism, paragraph 1024, says that heaven is the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings the state of supreme, definitive happiness. This is what we're created for, what we're destined for. It's not a place so much like in the the earlier ways that we may have seen that earlier cosmogies or cosmologies that there's a dome above the earth and that heaven is above the dome, uh, as they would have understood in biblical times. But heaven is where God dwells. It will have a placeness, and it does now because Jesus' body is there. Mary's body is there. There will be bodies in heaven, whether you want to see it as another dimension or as a city of gold. There are all kinds of different words and ways that have been used to describe and understand it. But the main focus of heaven is not going to be the cities or the mansions that uh, the Lord is going to prepare for us, and there are all kinds of ways for understanding this, but it's going to be the beatific vision, it's going to be seeing God face-to-face, the contemplation of the Lord's divinity and beauty, which I think to a lot of people sounds boring. I'm going to sit here and look at God for all eternity. That's not exciting at all. And we've got to understand, though, that heaven is not a, a static reality. It's active. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body talks about how in, in, in heaven, God gives himself totally to us. We receive that gift and give ourselves back totally to him. And so it's this for eternity, this self gift, this participating in the life of the Trinity. John of the Cross, the great mystic, even says that we participate in the spiration of the Holy Spirit. And so through this being part of God's life and his love and his gift, we also get to share in his knowledge, sort of like plugging into the mainframe, and our human intellect will be able to share and know uh, part of God's intellect, uh, to see things as He sees things. And again, that's in a way, I guess, we could explain how we will know other people uh, even when we are in heaven, to know so much about them even though we didn't meet them. One of the main ideas that uh, Scott Hahn, the great biblical scholar, comes up with in his book, The Lamb's Supper, uh, gives us another understanding of another dimension of heaven, uh, looking at the book of Revelation, which describes heaven, but to see it not talking about the end of the world as much, but describing heaven as this eternal liturgy, the Lamb's Supper, where we, we worship the Lamb and give praise and worship to him. And so, if this is true, there's a liturgical dimension to heaven, a uh, sacramental dimension, it further reinforces that the main purpose there is to offer worship to God. Um, it's, it's all centered on worshiping the Lord. I think so often we get caught up with, well, you know, will there be food in heaven? Will we be able to fish in heaven? Will we have our friends in heaven? This is all important, but the most important thing in heaven is that worship of God uh, sort of sharing in his very life. Now, of course there will be the community of saints. As I mentioned, we will know everyone else as God knows them because we will have that beatific vision and our human intellect will be able to know insofar as our human intellect can contain the knowledge, all things as God knows them. And we're gonna exist in that harmony of peace and love with everyone there. Now, Granted, hopefully there's times we can be by ourselves and not have to be around billions of people Um, But somehow, even in that, even in the crowd, the introverts will be happy uh, because there'll there'll be no animosity, nothing pushing us against others. We will know and love them as God loves them. No one is going to be a stranger. But as much as we're delighting in these uh, celestial pleasures we're still going to be interested in what happens on earth. That's why we believe the saints intercede for us, because they love us. They understand our weakness. They want us to be with them one day. And so they are praying for us, interceding for us. And we can ask saints to, to, to watch out for us and to intercede for us. And also, I think our loved ones, we pray for the repose of their soul, um, but also never to forget the ones we love. And that assuming they get to heaven, they're going to really be watching out for us. Now, one of the questions that I get a lot is, <clears throat> will there be animals in heaven? In fact, people seem to be more willing to believe their animals go to heaven than anyone else does. We have the, the rainbow bridge poem and funerals for dogs. And it's wonderful that we care about our animals. Um, is there the church have a definitive answer on whether or not there'll be animals in heaven? We don't uh, have a definitive answer. I can't imagine or be hard to imagine that every single animal that's ever lived would be there uh, because we believe that animals do not have immortal souls. Uh, once they die, they die. Uh, however, on Earth, we can be sort of very, very connected to certain animals. Uh, we can humanize them. C.S. Lewis talks a little bit about this. We can love a dog because it could be man's best friend in a way that, let's say, a tiger or a roach or a snake can't be. So there's some connection there, but as I always say, you are not going to care whether your puppy or your kitten is in heaven. You are going to care about worshiping the Lord. The truth is, is in all of this, I think this is the real point of, of this lesson, is that we should have a great desire for heaven. This is our ultimate goal, our ultimate destiny so often people lack that desire for heaven, that longing, that yearning for heaven. We're passionate about a lot of other things, our sports, our school, our family, not things that are bad. We put our passions into that instead of working for uh, heaven and to be able to bring about and live in that kingdom of God. Or even worse, I think a lot of people just have that asadia, that 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 spiritual apathy—they really don't care. They're too mired mired in the world. We should really pray to desire heaven to be able to be with the Lord and our loved ones and the saints of, and angels. Keeping an eye on our goal, our telos, will help us uh, stay in the fight and really strive to love others and to love God. So I, <clears throat> I could have you a lot more on heaven. One of the great books on heaven is by Dr. Peter Crafft. Uh, everything You've Always Wanted to Know About Heaven But Were Afraid to Ask, or, or Never Dreamed of Asking is what it's called. Um, really highly suggest getting that book answers a lot of questions. But the truth is, as St. Paul tells us, and we'll wrap it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. So we can talk about the beatific vision, we could talk about the community of saints, we could talk about the gold-paved streets and the many, many mansions, but the truth is we can't even imagine what this will be like, the ecstasy, the going out of ourselves. The joy and the happiness and those things that we love on earth are certainly a share in that, a foretaste of the beatitude that we will have in heaven and the blessedness that we experience on earth. We can only use analogies to explain heaven and all these other things that sort of go beyond our mind's ability, our capacity to fully grasp. And the key is not the full understanding of it in our intellects, but our hearts, a desire for heaven, a desire to be with God, to really be able to participate in the exchange of love and the Trinity for all of eternity. Mind can't wrap around that, but the more we think about it, the more we think feel it and desire it, uh, the more I think we'll find that our spiritual life is enlightened.